Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. My microphone on, and when I was in the restroom, I misbuttoned my shirt when I came back. And so I preached the whole sermon with my shirt out of order. That was, and so I got home and I had a good laugh about that. Another time I was to pray, and instead of praying, I said, let's play. So, you know, I guess praying and playing can be the same thing. So if I have a verbal flub, I, I apologize already. I've just, it's just a part of who I am. I just know once coming. So, you know, feel free to laugh at me because I laugh at myself afterwards. Well, welcome to the new year. I hope you guys are having a good new year. Uh, for, many, for many of us, it represents a time to get started with something new and fresh. Uh, many people make resolutions. Uh, I made a few myself, which are more like, for me, it's more things to be working on this, pe- this coming year. Just reflecting on the past year, just things I wanted to be working on for myself. But Jonathan Edwards was a man who came to my mind. For those of you who don't know, he was the main figure in the first great awakening in the United States. And as a young man, about 18, 19 years old, he penned a list of 70 resolutions on how he wanted to live his life. And these resolutions were to guide him in his life. And when you read these, and I encourage you to go Google these when you're at home and read through his resolutions that he made when he was a very young man. Um, And they were just very impressive that he had that heart at that age. But one amazing thing about Jonathan Edwards, not regarding his uh, preaching or his resolutions or anything like that, is that he was a great father and husband to Susan. Uh, George Whitfield, the famous evangelist of that era, remarked that the Edwards household was well-run and godly. He was very impressed with how the Edwards household was, was run. And what's interesting is you trace the generations of Jonathan Edwards, and many of his descendants became pastors and lawyers and college presidents. And they were all very... It was just interesting to see his legacy get passed on through his offspring. And so if you're in the subject of making resolutions or anything like that, I hope that you will consider maybe making some regarding parenting. Now, I know not all of you may have dependents in your household, but the following reflections can be very similar in mentoring. Like when you're mentoring someone else and discipling them, you're going to find a lot of these principles are very similar. So before we get into the message, let me first kind of tell you how it's going to go. First, we're going to kind of look at a theology of children, like who our children are, what is their identity, and then we'll follow this with the theology of parenting. But first, let me kind of throw this out there. As you, many of you probably know, Julie and I don't have kids, so this might seem kind of a strange subject, and I was wrestling with this because we don't have kids in our household, so I don't have much as far as practical experience of parenting. However, for the past seven years, I've been working with children and youth in various capacities, uh, in summer camp and youth ministry. And from my experiences, from watching and just seeing uh, what has happened in children, I know if I really want to get to know a child, I have to get to know their parents. If I want to understand a child, uh, i got to get to know how they were parented and who their parents are. Because I know that uh, whoever their parents are, that is more likely going to dictate what is going to happen in a child's life. Um, you know, even in summer camp, this was something that often just flabbergasted me, and we just dealt with it. Uh, we would get some troubled child, and they would say, fix him. And I'm like, you know, I have a week. And they're like, oh, you know, fix my child in a week. Oh, yeah, I can't undo, you know, in seven days, which you'd manage to do in ten years. But I, I will make an effort. 
Uh, so we, we would often have that as well. And, and I was thinking about this. You know, often we dedicate babies here. And we, as a church, we agree to help our parents in the rearing and raising of their children. So maybe if you do not have a parent, you can be thinking, okay, how can I partner? How can I come alongside these parents that we have pledged to help raise this child uh, in godly living? So first, let's kind of look at a theology of children. So we're going to be all over the place in your, in your Bible. So, you know, good old sword drill. Uh, Psalm 127, we're going to read verses 3 through 6. Bless you. All right. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So first, the first thing about children is children are a gift from the Lord. The psalmist writes this. He says children are a gift. They're an inheritance. It is a blessing to have children, not a curse. Uh, too often when people are talking about their children, this, their attitude when they're talking about their, their children reveals to me at least an attitude as if it were a curse to actually have children. Um, you may hear th- things such as, you know, you lose your freedom when you have kids, or they're expensive, and they're draining on your time and energy. You're going to lose all, you know, all that free time that you once had. And that attitude, and I understand where those statements are coming from. I, I do get that they have an element of truth in them, but they reveal an attitude towards children. And instead of seeing them as an inheritance and as a gift and as a blessing, that they are rather a curse. And I think too often our speech can be revealing when we're talking about our children. We must first realize that they are a gift, an inheritance from God. Uh, he has specially created each individual child. Uh, flip over a few chapters, Psalm 139. Read verses 14 through 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here, David is recounting God's work in the womb of creating him as a person. And God has specially con- uh, created each individual child, so they are very unique. Uh, and they bear God's image and are unique in their dignity. It is not your right to have children, but rather a privilege. Uh, Moses would write in Genesis that every human being, doesn't matter the age, is created in the image of God. And that is where they inherit their dignity and their honor and their worth. It's not because of their contribution to society or to the family. It's because of who they are. It's their identity being created in the image of God. That's what gives them worth and value. And I think I may have a little different perspective on this, and I know other couples do as well, who uh, struggle to have children, and maybe we cannot for whatever reason. And when we see people talking about children as a a curse rather than a blessing, it kind of doesn't really sit well with us because, like, look, you don't understand. I mean, it is a gift and a blessing and a privilege to have children because not all of us can. Um, And Jesus, and we see this constantly throughout Scripture, uh, especially in the Gospels, is constantly showing honor to children. So, New Testament now, Matthew 19. In verses 14 through 15, or 13 through 15, I'm sorry. 
Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And so we read here that the, the crowds, some of the parents were trying to get their children to see Jesus, and the disciples were barring their way to see Jesus. And Jesus rebukes his disciples, say, Hey, stop doing that. Let the children come to me, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. And, and we see that, God, that children have a special place in the heart of God and in, and in Jesus' ministry. He, he loved children. However, we know that our children are not angels, which leads to my second point when it comes to a theology of children. Uh, children are sinners who need Jesus. Uh, we see this in Psalm 51.5. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so do our children sin because they are sinners, or are they sinners because they sin? Well, let's see how Paul answers that question in Romans 5, and we'll look at verses 12 through 14. Like I said, your Bible's getting a good workout this morning. <coughs> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Right, I'm just going to pause there and say, okay, so, so Paul writes that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and death spread to all men, which includes your children, your, your children, and every one of us, because all men have sinned in Adam. We have inherited Adam's sinful nature. And David writes that similar. Let me just quote that again, Psalm 51.5, which says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So to answer that question, do we sin because we are sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? We are born in sin, and that's why we are sinners. And all parents know this intuitively. You never had to teach your child how to say no defiantly, or how to hit their sibling, or how to disobey or lie. You never had to teach your children how to do that. They just do it. That's who they are. It comes out of their sinful nature. You have to train your child how to live righteously, to tell the truth, and to share, and to do those things that are the right thing to do. And it's because we are sinners from birth. As the novel Lord of the Flies illustrates, and some of you, I don't, I don't know how many English people we have out there that love to read books, but this is a classic book, and I think it does a good job at illustrating uh, human beings, their sinful nature. And the premise of the novel is this, is that there's an airplane crash and these boys are stranded on a deserted island. They have no societal influences, no one is there except for these children. However, as the author so aptly illustrates throughout this book, it's not long before these boys descend into evil and to murder. And why? It's because we have evil hearts and we are born in sin. We are rotten to the core from birth. Uh, Jer Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? And Jesus says something similar in Matthew 15.18-20. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. So when, our, so when our children, they misbehave, it is because of their sinful hearts. And too much of parenting these days, I think, is kind of like fighting a hydra. And, you know, when Hercules battled the hydra, he would cut off one head of the hydra just to have two grow in its place. And too often parents are like, okay, I've got to change this behavior. Then they change the behavior, but they end up with 
two other behaviors that are just as bad. And I think our problem is we are dealing with a heart root issue and not, and not the uh, fruit issue that, that we are too often dealing with. Uh, you know, like a tree that produces only rotten fruit, we don't go to the root of the problem, which is their sin and their need to repent. A good parent would therefore address the heart of the child and not just the behavior of the child. And the solution for your children is a new heart and a new nature. As God says in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And this is a work that God must do in your children. It's not something you can do for them, but it's something God must do for them. And just to continue Paul's thought that I referenced earlier, I hope you have your Bibles still in Romans 5. Uh, we're going to finish the passage, so we, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the gift receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so as Paul writes, it's just as we have inherited Adam's sinful state, so through Christ we can inherit righteousness and justification for God. And the thing is, our children, they must be supernaturally saved by Jesus. That is, that is their core principal need. It's not a new behavior. It's Jesus. That is their principal need. And for as much as you and I would love to see your children saved, come to know Christ, it's not something that you and I can force. We cannot force salvation on them. Uh, I, I, I very hesitate to give a child a false assurance of salvation. But rather, when your child is feeling convicted and dealing and wrestling with sin, remind your children not to seek you as much as to seek God when they are being convicted over their sin. And I would rather a child and youth spend several sleepless nights dealing and wrestling and doing business with God uh, with their sin on earth rather than an eternity of sleepless nights in hell. And I think, it's in, I think it's very easy for us to force conversion on our child. That's not to say you don't have any influence, but we are to pray, we are to persuade, we are to pursue our child and let them know who Jesus is. That is what we are supposed to do as parents. But we can't make them Christians as much as we would like to. So this is kind of who children are. So before we get into the parenting bit of this message, let me first kind of give you two truths that the Bible is very clear on, but they're always in tension, but they're both equally true. The first one is this, is that God is sovereign. God is in control of your children, their futures, their destinies. Uh, he is in charge, and he cares for them. The second truth is this, is that God uses means. Just because God is sovereign does not mean that we are off the hook. It does not lead to laziness and apathy. He honors hard work and appropriate means. Uh, for example, uh, consider the verses in Philippians 2, 12-13. They say, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here Paul is writing about sanctification. Paul tells us to work it out, and then he says that it's God who works in you. 
So which is it? Is it God or is it you? Well, yes. It's both. It's God and you. And it's the same thing when it comes to parenting. It's both God and you. God, God is ultimately sovereign, in charge over your children, yet he honors and he uses good parenting. So what then makes good parenting? Well, the first thing is good parenting places God first, the marriage second, and children third. And it's kind of a strange place to start, but it's talking about priorities here. In reality, this is the scheme that Paul sits out in the book to uh, Ephesians, or the letter he wrote to the church of Ephesus. In the book, in chapters 1 through 5, Paul is dealing with our relationship with God. And then in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, he's talking about marriage and how the marriage relationship is to work. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, we have a singular command regarding parenting. And I think the proportion is kind of intentional, for your relationship with God must come first, and then your spouse, and then your children. For it's quite possible to have things in your life that become your functional idols. It's easy to make an idol out of a spouse or your children. However, God demands first place in our lives. Following God in first place, your marriage comes second. For at some point, you're not going to have any kids anymore. Well, hopefully you won't have any kids anymore in your house. At some point, you should be empty nesters. Um, that was one of the happiest days of my dad's life, I think. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, at some point, that's going to be your household. It's just going to be you and your spouse. And if you didn't have a relationship outside of your children, what are you going to have when your children are gone? And as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, I encourage you to go read those, that is where your children will see the gospel first demonstrated, is in your marriage. So where else are your children as well going to see a godly, Christ-centered couple? If they're not seeing it in you, how else are they going to know how to, how to live uh, in a married life? And as a youth pastor, I get to see the consequences when priorities get skewed. Uh, for one, I, I've seen many families, they can sometimes place a child's activities before God. Uh, for instance, how many families have neglected, and you don't have to raise your hands on this, a family meal or devotion in sports season? You know, we're just too busy. I mean, all these athletics are going on, and we just don't have time to do devotions. Or how many families have, are gone half the Sundays of the year because their child's too busy in all these different traveling leagues, so they can't ever be here on Sunday? Or how many families encourage a youth to work? during church activities to get for themselves a car, a cell phone, other luxuries. Youth, you don't need those things. They are luxuries. All right. So when your parents give them to you, say thank you. Right. It's not a right. Sorry. Now, now, you may not think much of the decision at the time, but later on in life, uh, what you have communicated to your child is that you can serve and honor God when it is convenient for you. You know, when it's convenient for you and it doesn't require you to sacrifice something else that you may love, we can squeeze in some church attendance. Or when life life slows down, maybe we'll spend some time together in family devotions. And so when your child is an adult, they are no longer underneath your household. Is it any wonder that they are disconnected from church or leaving their faith completely? For you have communicated through your actions and decisions throughout their life that God is not number one. They're simply living out what they have been taught in your, life, in your lifestyle decisions. And so I, I don't think it's any surprise that young adults are leaving the church in mass droves. They are simply living out the example that is left to them by their parents. And if their parents show that things are more important than God, then it's no surprise that they no longer make him a priority. 
But this uh, leads me to a second principle in parenting, which is this, is that the godly life is caught and taught. All right, so going back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. Now we read verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So in this passage in Deuteronomy, Moses is telling the Israelites that they are to instruct their children to love the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only are we supposed to communicate at love, but we are to teach it and to live it to our children in all of our different avenues in life. Um, And we know that as parents and as adults, that children primarily learn through imitation. It's monkey see, monkey do. They're going to do what they see you do as a parent, which can be both encouraging and terrifying depending on your perspective. But how many parents have said something like this? And I don't think my mom and dad did, but maybe they did, and I just don't remember. Um, and it says, and I've heard this several times, which is, do what I say, not what I do. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, it's the most ludicrous, outrageous thing to tell a child. Don't, don't do what I do, but do what I say. Uh, if you're wondering why your child is not living that godly lifestyle that you want, you still want for them, first place you must look is in the mirror. Are you living a godly lifestyle as a parent? You see, your children have a front row seat to your life and to your sins. Uh, you, your children will notice when you stumble. And so when you fail as a parent, when you sin as a parent, what do you do? Because there's really, you got three options as a parent when you stumble, when you sin. And there are two good, or two bad and one good. The, the first bad option is this, is denial. I can't make a mistake. I didn't do anything wrong. And if I did, or if you think I did, it's because you're mistaken about my mistake. So there. I'm, I'm the parent, I'm never wrong. I mean, there are some parents that just absolutely, and, and this isn't just limited to parents, this is, goes for all of us, I think, just will deny that we can make any mistakes at all. That's a case of pride is what that is, is we don't want to own up to our sins and, and admit that what we, we had done is sinful. And the second uh, bad option is this, is minimizing. Well, I guess I see your point. What I did was wrong, but it wasn't really all that wrong. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't as bad as the next guy. Well, we need to remember, as David writes in Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned, you being God. And when we sin, it is ultimately an offense against God. R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic treason. And so when you sin, even in a small way, it is a grievance offense against the holy God. We are to take all sin seriously. And the third option is this, is to repentance. When you repent, you acknowledge, you own your actions as sinfully, like what I did was wrong. You take ownership of it, and then you turn away from it. Saying, what, saying something like, what I did was wrong, and will you forgive me? That will go a long way in restoring and reestablishing your relationship with your children. And let me give you two examples from my dad, I think, who modeled this well for me. And when I was in middle school football, my dad was the head coach, 
and he was rightly irritated with the team. I mean, middle school boys, okay? Enough said. We, we, can be, we could have been pretty stupid, and we probably were at the time. So he was rightly irritated with us, and while he was chewing us out, which we probably deserved, uh, he used a word that was a borderline curse word. After the team meeting and after my dad was done with this and when we were at home, uh, I remember my older brother and myself, we were talking to my dad about the word that he was using, and he listened to us. He admitted that he should have chosen his words better. And if I remember correctly, the next day he apologized to the team and said, hey, guys, I'm sorry I should not have said that that word to you guys. Now, it might seem kind of minor and insignificant to, to you guys, but to me, as a middle school boy, it spoke volumes to my dad's character that he was man enough to say, hey, what I did was wrong, and I want to make things right. And another time, uh, my dad, and this is another example that comes from high school, is he took the three of us guys, I have two brothers, so three guys, and my dad went to the movies, and went to a movie that was a far cry from something that a Christian young man should should have gone to you. Um, and my dad was deeply moved by this later on. After the movie was done, the credits were rolling. We're in a, in a fast food restaurant. My dad begins to cry and to weep and say, God was not pleased with the decision to go see this movie. And what he was modeling to me is that, okay, when you make a mistake, you need to make things right. You need to repent. You need to own those things. Now, my dad is not perfect by any means. And those stories show that my dad did not make perfect decisions. But he did a great job at modeling to me repentance and confession as a child. And as Moses was saying in the passage of Deuteronomy, that faith must be taught as well. So it is caught and taught. Now, of the two, I will say this. They're going to catch more than they're going to be taught. They're going to learn more just from your example. But the the verbal instruction is also important. Uh, Proverbs 22.6 puts it this way. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so we see here that a, a verbal instruction is also important in the life of a child. I mean, they're not just going to pick up from your example alone. You must have those spiritual conversations with your child, you know, the why you are doing what you are doing. Um, and, and what I notice and what I know uh, is that my, my students and the youth and the children, they are primarily going to pick up the, the cues from their parents, spiritually speaking. Now, my role is to help, guide, resource, come alongside, train, uh, but I am not a, a use primary spiritual mentor. I am not going to be the final one who they look to where they're going to develop their cues from. It's going to be you, their parents. And why do I say this? You know, one reason is practical, and the other is theological. Practical reason is this. Uh, first, I have only the opportunity to shape, mold, instruct, mentor maybe one to three hours a week. Maybe. More likely, less than that. I am limited in time and in body, and I can only do so much. However, parents, you are with your children far longer than I am at all. So who is their child more likely going to listen to and adopt the lifestyle of? Well, it's going to be you. And second, as Moses, Proverbs, Paul, and Ephesians um, all write, that they place the role, the emphasis of the spiritual instruction on parents. And therefore, a mantra that I repeat to myself, and I try to communicate this to the youth volunteers, and I'm sure Marcy would agree with this as well, is we are to support families. We are not to supplant families. We are not to supplant the family's role in spiritual instruction. Now, there is much good that happens in children's and youth ministry. I'm not saying they're unimportant, because they are important. But 
they are only of not as great of influence as you have. They have influence, but not as much as you do as a parent. Don't think of youth and children's activity as like drop-off parenting. I'm going to drop off my kids there. They're going to get the spiritual dumping, all the instruction that they need, and they get home, they're going to be perfect, and they got all the instruction that they needed. Um, that's not going to work. But remember that you're, the aim of parenting is to bring up, to drop well-adjusted, godly adults. Uh, you parent for adulthood. You don't want your children to remain kids forever, dependent on you, spiritually speaking. You want them to grow them in their faith. They've got to grow up. The third thing that I want to talk about is discipline. When you discipline, it's for heart transformation, not behavior modification. And throughout this uh, talk, I've been, and when I was preparing for this, I was really working through this book called Gospel Power and Parenting. This section, I really take a lot of my cues from, from this book. So if you're a parent, you're looking for a book on parenting, recommend this one for you guys. Uh, I'll probably post a link later on to where you can find that online and order that if you so desire it. So discipline is a must. Uh, it's, it's a form of love. And there are various Proverbs regarding discipline. We're just going to take the whirlwind tour through the book of Proverbs here. So Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs nineteen eighteen. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 22.15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. In Proverbs 29.15 and 17, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And you see here in Proverbs that discipline is given as a must for your children. Actually, is going as far to say if you fail to discipline your child, you actually hate your child. It's not a form of love at all. Um, and Stephen suggested that corporal punishment is suggested in the means in which to hand out discipline. Um, I was spanked as a child, and I probably deserved every spanking I got. Um, it's a must for parents. And what is the goal behind discipline? Well, for many parents, the goal is to modify their behavior. You know, you want them to stop doing something and do something else. But remember, our earlier distinction, we're talking about they have a heart problem, not a behavior problem. Uh, the sinful behavior of your child is coming out of that sinful heart. So when you discipline, you're, you're disciplining for the heart of that child, not for their behavior. Uh, let's read uh, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. I think it draws us out very well, and it's talking here about the discipline that God gives us. This is one of those ouch, if you can't, and this is, uh, I think it's Bodhi Bakken says, if you can't say amen, say ouch, and this is one of those ouch passages to me anyways. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you are have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, so here, this passage is laying out God's fatherly discipline of us, his children. And this is one of those ouch passages to me. It's like, oh, I, I guess I need to be thankful that God is disciplining me as my son. But by extension, as parents, this is what we are aiming to do, what I hope you are aiming to do as parents, is that you are disciplining for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of their hearts. And you are treating them as children. That's what the Bible is being clear at, is if you are loving your child, you must be disciplining your child. And I think that it first begins by calling sin what it is, sin. Uh, It seems that there's always a new clinical diagnosis for your child's unruly behavior. They are maladjusted instead of disobedient. And children suffer from, and I actually, this is an actual diagnosis, I'm not making this up, oppositional defiant disorder, rather than rebellious. Uh, We live in a culture that likes to medicate our children we know, with all sorts of different drugs, you know, pump them full of drugs, and then that will curb their biology, their genetics, and their unruly behavior. Rather than dealing with the heart of, their ma- the, heart of the matter, they're indwelling sin. And I think it comes with realizing as well that not only is your child's disobedience, unruly behavior, or whatever, is it against you, but it's also against God. For you are their ruling authority. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is, honor your father and mother. So children, honor your father and mother. Obey them. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So there you go. Every child's favorite verse. Memorize that, stamp that, you know, whatever you want to do with that. In Romans 13, 1, Paul tells us, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, in context, he's talking about civil government. You know, he's talking about... Uh, how we are to relate to the governmental authorities. But by extension, he says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Parental authority is, a, is something that has been instituted by God. Therefore, when children rebel, they're not just rebelling against you as their parent, they're rebelling against the authority that God has put in place over them, which ultimately is rebellion against God. And I, I think that that is kind of helps me see the gravity of the situation and when you have your child that's in a pattern of sinful behavior you realize it's not just against me that this children is sinning it's really against God that's who their offense is against this leads me to two tra- uh, two truths about parenting and discipline which is disobedience to parents now leads to greater disobedience to God later I mean and there's a pattern to this and obedience to parents now leads to greater obedience to God later on you see, your, your, your child's level of submission and obedience to you, his authority or her authority, will reflect in his or her relationship to God later on. That's why all parents must take discipline seriously, for they are learning in that discipline how they are as well to relate to God. And good discipline aims for the heart of their problem, which is their sinful heart. So when your child rebels and acts out in sin against you, we discipline for the heart and the sin. And for example, this is kind of a very rubber hits the road example. You, you are baking cookies. Your child's asked, classic, can I have a cookie? And then you tell, tell the child, not now, because it'll ruin their dinner. Good explanation. But defiantly, when you're not looking, what does a child do? 
slips that cookie away, and eats it. So how do you respond in, in light of all of this discussion? Well, first you must call the, the sinful act what it is. It's sin. It's an act of sin, of rebellion, and defiance. And so when you're disciplining your child, you're explaining to them, using Scripture, why, why they did this and that it is a sin against you, and it's because they have a wicked, sinful heart and that they need to re- repent and ask you and God for forgiveness. Then explain the, go- the gospel to them, that Jesus obeyed perfectly in his or her place, that your child can be right with you and God. That's disciplining biblical style. That might seem unusually harsh, but I think it, it shows the child that sin is a serious business. It's not like, you know, cookie theft, that's not really a big deal, but when you think about it, well, it's a sin against God, and it really is serious business. So here's the fourth thing when it comes to parenting, is that the father is ultimately responsible to God for his children. And this is one of those very politically incorrect things about Christianity. It's unapologetically patriarchal. The Bible reserves the leadership role for the home and in the church for men. The two passages in the New Testament that speak of parenting are both addressed to fathers. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul's explaining that the husband is the spiritual head of his household and the spiritual head of his wife. And again in Colossians 3.21, Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And remembering uh, the verses that we read in Hebrews 12, they were talking about God's fatherly discipline and the discipline of our fathers. Uh, In the Old Testament, Eli is held responsible by God for his disobedient children. That is why Eli was disqualified eventually as a priest is because of the sinful behavior of his children. And the same thing went for Samuel as well. God held him responsible for his children. For you see, God holds a father responsible for his household and his children. Now wives and mothers, they have an important role to play in the rearing of children for sure. You see, if anything, our, our culture, I think, has flip-flopped these, these two roles. In our culture, the mother's the primary parent. You know, she's the one who does most of the parenting, and the father assists her in the parenting. Well, the biblical model says this. No, the father is the the first parent, and the mother assists him in the parenting of the children. And as more studies are being done, we're finding out that God actually knew what he was talking about. Imagine that. Uh, What we have discovered is that children adopt the spiritual practices of their fathers over their mothers. Uh, For example, a Swiss study was done when... And, and it's all about church attendance. So it's not talking about their actual beliefs, but just the practice of going to church, which is a very basic practice. Uh, when the father is a regular attender of the church, so when the dad regularly attending church, and the mother's also regularly attending the church, the child's likelihood of becoming an adult who regularly attends the church is over 30%. And even 44% when the father is a regular attender and the mother is irregular. So 44% when that happens. However, when the mother is a regular attender of the church and the father, does not go, the father is not going to church or is irregular in his attendance, the child's likelihood of being a regular adult attender is at 2%. It just kind of shows that disparity, I think, just shows to me that God knew what he was talking about all along. And it shows that fathers are of first importance spiritually in a child's life. Our culture is suffering from an epidemic of fatherlessness. Um, and godly men and fatherless children are, uh, 
are, are continuing to rise. Without going into deta- great detail, studies have been done to find that children without fathers are more prone to drug abuse, gang activity, criminal activity, suicide, end up in prison. Basically, if you think of a vice, those children without fathers are more likely to end up with it. And so as much as we would like to deny that fathers are of importance in a child's life, studies are continuing to confirm that the Bible knew what it was talking about all along. So it may be politically incorrect, but that doesn't make it false. It does not make it untrue. However, for the single moms that are out there, or the, or the spout, or the mom that is married to the unbelieving spouse, God is father to the fatherless. For example, Timothy, Paul's protege, was raised by two God-fearing women, his mom and his grandma. St. Augustine was pursued relentlessly by his mom. And by the way, this is kind of a cool story. His mom, just Monica, cracks me up. I almost think of her as like the mommy stalker. I mean, he was like ditch his mom and try to run away from her, and she'd find him anyway. So I, I always just read about their relationship. It makes me laugh just how, you know, she's almost like a private eye finding out where Augustine was. And Augustine later on, because of the influence of his mom primarily, becomes a Christian and becomes a probably the, the, the most important theologian in church history. So it is possible for a child not to have a strong, godly, fatherly figure and to, to uh, follow Christ spiritually and to become a great man or woman of the faith. It is not impossible, but it's much more difficult. That is not the way that God had intended the family relationship to go. And for the Christian men who are in the congregation today uh, who have no children in their household, maybe consider mentoring a young man who lacks that spiritual father at home. Um, Paul writes in Titus 2, 1 through 5, and I'm not going to read that, but I'm just referencing it for you to check out on your own. But it's about the older generation mentoring and building up and training the younger generation. So I could put it to you this way. You know, when we fail to mentor or train and disciple young men, especially the young men who are in our church, we are being disobedient to Paul's writing here in Titus 2, 1 through 5, and also the Great Commission itself, which, tell, which tells us to make disciples, and it all begins at home. If ever whether it was a time or place for men to reclaim their God-given roles, it is today and here. And last but not least is the gospel is for you parents. All right, at the end of all this, you may be despairing, because you'll be like, there's no, yeah, yeah, right, those four points, there's no way I can do that perfectly. I'm, I'm going to make mistakes. And I want you to know that the gospel is for you. Let me remind you of a truth that I mentioned earlier. God is ultimately in control of your children. It should give you great freedom to, to realize that they are in the hands of the greatest parent of them all, God the Father. And like the product, and I, I think it's important for us to be, to be released from that, because we know we are not perfect, and we must know that they are in the hands of a God who loves and cares for them. And there's also a problem that I haven't really mentioned and made much of, and that is of Good parents who follow these principles to the best of their ability, yet when their children become adults, they become wayward or they leave the faith for whatever reason. They may have done a stellar, amazing job at being a parent. Man, there's a youth pastor word, stellar. Um, and the youth are like, that was like 10 years ago, Andrew. Come on, give it the times. Uh, But anyway, yes, those parents who have those children who end up going wayward, there comes a point when you cease to be responsible for your child, and your child becomes responsible for his or herself. And at that point, you must uh, pray that, like the prodigal son, they would come to themselves, you know, realize the error of their ways, and repent. God is greater than any 
weakness, any sin, any failure of yours as a parent, and you will have those as a parent. And the gospel will redeem those things, including all your mistakes as a parent. And you will find great freedom in trusting your, ha- in trusting your children into the hands of the greatest father of them all, Jesus, or God. God the Father, not Jesus. That's the Son. I told you I'd misspeak sometime today. <laughs> all right. Well, as we close here, again, I do recommend that book, Gospel-Powered Parenting, William P. Farley. I really recommend that book for you parents who are maybe interested into going into more depth. I didn't really want to flush out in detail what all these points mean because all your contexts are different. And I hope that you guys will take this to heart, that you will become better parents. Maybe that's your resolution this year is to become a better parent. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, I thank you for uh, this morning, for drawing us together here to consider your word. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to, to pass the baton, to hand off our faith to the next generation, and to hand it off well. Lord, I pray that we would uh, raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that we'd teach them what it means to have a godly life and to tr- turn our lives to you. Lord, we, we love you and we trust our, our children to you. In your name we pray. Amen.